a couple just quick announcements here. I, we're already running late, and last time I taught this, I only got through verse 1 in the first hour. So I'll try to do better this time. I'm going to read you very quickly a, well, it's one page, I apologize, but I have to read it to you. It's a, it's a, I got a phone call yesterday from a lady, and I asked her to just write down her thoughts and send it to me, and she did so, and this is what she says. I spoke to you on the phone today from sunny Florida, where I was trying to download additional materials from your website to my computer and onto an MP3 player. It took some perseverance, but I did it. I discovered your website after a friend of mine from Northern Virginia asked if I knew about the Institute of Catholic Culture. After listening to your two Introduction to Sacred Scripture classes, I knew I had discovered a gold mine of solid Catholic teaching. Although I already have a degree in theology, I haven't been active in teaching due to health issues, so I am planning on using your website as a very important resource to continue my studies and prepare to do some teaching at the local parish here. Additionally, and most importantly, I have passed your website address to my son and daughter-in-law. They currently live in the Netherlands with my six grandchildren, where they are assigned in an area without a full-time priest. When they arrived, the parish was using non-Catholic teaching materials, and Protestants were serving on the parish council. Nothing against our dear Protestant brothers and sisters here today, but it was a Catholic church. To make a long story short, they were quite concerned, and so they volunteered to teach First Communion and their confirmation class, and my son also became a member of the parish council. Their task has not been an easy one over the last two years, as they are not educators, nor do they have a background in theology or religious education. And now my kids know about your website, and I am sure they will be putting it to good use as they continue to teach the creed, the sacraments, and so forth. Thank you. Your website is being put to good use. Lay Catholics today need a basic, accurate Catholic resources that can be accessed quickly and listened to easily if we are to keep ourselves immersed in truth and be able to evangelize in our daily lives. May God bless you in this important ministry. Anne Bonin-Clark. We have our work cut out for us. Uh, in the book of Genesis. Like I said before, the first class I taught last time, we only got through verse 1 in the first hour. I'm going to try to do better than that this time, although we're already running behind. So if I move fast, I talk fast, please bear with me. If I get lost in my notes because I'm moving so fast, please bear with me. Why study the book of Genesis? Why study the book of Genesis? I'm not going to stand up here and lecture to you guys. Why study the book of Genesis? Why would we not read the Gospels? Why do we not just turn and pay, put our attention there? Yes? Well, because it sets the stage. What do you mean it sets the stage? Well, it's creation. It's got the first promise of redemption. It's got the fall. It's got the first promise. It's got what, what man is. Good. 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 In the New Testament, as I'm sure you know, first of all, our Lord is identified over and over again in the epistles of St. Paul as the new Adam. The new Adam, the new man. And if you're going to understand who the new Adam is, what do you have to first know? Who the old Adam was, exactly. Turn your Bibles open to John chapter 1, verse 1. Many of the older generation will remember this text by heart. John 1, 1. I want you to listen to this. We've all heard the, 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 the first verses of the book of Genesis many times. We've heard this text many times. And I want you to just think about this for a minute. Why is John writing this way? What is he saying? What is he trying to point out to us? 
Okay? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it. John starts his gospel out to tell you about the Word of God, to tell you about our blessed Savior. And how does he begin? He begins in the beginning. And he says to us, if you want to understand what I'm about to tell you, you better first understand what came before. You better understand the creation of the world. Because what this man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is about to do is to restore to us that which we had in the beginning. When I read this Gospel and I, and, uh, and I open these, these first verses, I read that as a stop sign. John's stop sign to us and saying, stop, wait a minute. Before you read these words, go back and read again the story in the beginning. And only then will you understand who Jesus Christ is when God opens His mouth and speaks and light shines into darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. The whole Gospel story is based, especially in the Gospel of John, is based on the writings in the first three chapters of the first book of the Bible. But unfortunately, I would say many of us, unfortunately, focus our attention first and foremost on the New Testament, leaving the Old Testament in the dust, if we open our Bibles at all, that is. Do me a favor. You're already there in John. Just flip back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. I want you to put your hand in the Bible, okay, right there, and grab hold all the way to the end of your Bible, the end of the book of Revelation there, and hold it just like that. From the Gospel of Matthew to the book of Revelation, right to the end, and just hold it in your hands, and look at what you have. You have the final chapter in your book, the final chapter in your Bible. And what happens dear friends, when you open a novel or when you open any book and you read the last chapter without reading what came before it, you won't know what's going on. And I would venture to say, I would venture to say that most Catholics leave the church because they're not well grounded in the Old Testament. And what they end up with is a very beautiful house that is built upon sand and it doesn't take much for someone to come along and knock it off its foundation. Because they don't understand why Jesus is doing what he's doing. To understand that, you've got to go back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis. St. Athanasius says, The first fact that you must grasp is this. The renewal of creation has been accomplished by the self-same word who made it in the beginning. Thus, there is no inconsistency between creation and salvation. For the one Father has employed the same agent for both works, fashioning the salvation of the world through the same Word who made it at the first. And Cardinal Jean Danielou, a great biblical scholar, goes further. 
He says, There can be no serious theology of the Incarnation or the Redemption without referring to, to the first three chapters of Genesis. To leave it in the dark is to be content with only a small part of the subject. It is to risk jarring one's faith in the redemption. Where original sin is minimized, the redemption takes the same path. And where redemption is minimized, faith is gone. And I'll take it one step further. Where faith is gone, there is no hope of salvation. Those are pretty dramatic words. That to leave Genesis in the dark is to risk your eternal salvation, to risk your faith in Jesus Christ. Why would he go that far? Why would he say that? To leave especially, he says, chapter 3 in the dark is to risk salvation. Yes, nice and loud because we're in a big room. Go ahead. Because you won't feel the need to be saved. I don't think I can say it any better than that. If there was no fall, then who is Jesus Christ? He's a nice guy. He's a good man. But he's not the savior of the world because if we haven't had a problem, he's not saving us from anything. And suddenly, your faith in Jesus Christ falls apart. Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 present us with the story of our home. It was written by a people that believed that God had chosen them out of the entire world. And this was the story of their beginning. This was the story of the beginning of mankind. They're not going to write things down that don't mean anything. These words in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis especially, in fact, the whole book of Genesis, the whole Pentateuch, are, I would say, the gospel in a nutshell. If you know chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis, you know the New Testament. Because Jesus Christ, our God, the creator of the world, does not change his plans. The devil does not thwart God's plans for man. God planned for mankind to live in a paradise of delight, to live in the Garden of Eden in the beginning, and he has not changed his plan for us. Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read these first few verses for you, and I'm going to ask you what you're thinking of as I read those things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and separated the waters, which were under the firmament, from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. Has anyone fallen asleep yet? I would venture to say that reading those words that we have heard so many times, that for many Catholics, and I would guess even in this room, they become so ingrained in us that we lose our sense of imagination. It becomes very difficult for us to see what's taking place. A friend of mine called this the Catholic comatose. 
right? The reading begins to be chanted in the church. And, oh yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. And we lose our ability to be able to read the text. Do we really know chapter 1 of Genesis? Let alone chapter 2 and chapter 3. Do we really know it? How many people think they know Genesis chapter 1 well? What happened on the fourth day of creation? Nope. What happened on the fifth day of creation? Good. Birds and fish. Good. Good. Yep, that was the fourth day. Sorry, you're off by a day. We'll get there. We'll get there. My point to you is this that we need to know it. We were just a, a lady was just asking me a question earlier about the tree of life. What is it? What is the tree of knowledge of good and evil? How many of you know that there's two trees in paradise? Honestly, raise your hand. It's okay. Good. About, about half, maybe. There were two trees planted in the midst of paradise, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. And what was the tree of knowledge all about? Have you thought about these things? Have you spent your days with the radio turned off in your car and considered these issues? And I want to challenge you to start to do that, especially over the next month. Again, I will say nothing is there by accident. There is no meaningless detail. St. Ambrose says this. He's writing about the Gospel of Luke, but I think it's very helpful for us. He says, Do you suppose that any of these details were set down without good reason? Of course not. If no leaf can fall from a tree without cause, and not a single sparrow fall to the ground without the Heavenly Father's knowledge, am I to think that a superfluous word could fall from the lips of the holy evangelist? And yes, Moses, our author, was a holy evangelist. He gave us the first good news, as we will read about. He says, I think not. All his words, if only they have a diligent reader, contain supernal mysteries and are full of heavenly sweetness. So let's read that again. Open up your Bibles. You can close your eyes if it's helpful, but I want you to imagine what this looks like, what's taking place. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. What's it look like? What's creation look like? What's that? I'm intrigued. Go ahead. What's that? Oh, you could say that, but you'd be standing against the, the, the entire uh, history of the church fathers on this point, that it was at this point that although not all things are made explicit in the text, everything that is mentioned in the text is brought forth here at the beginning of the, of the world. But I want to ask you, what does it look like? It doesn't look like anything. It doesn't look like Good! We're standing in the darkness. It's all dark. And there's no what? There's, there's, it's shapeless. It's void of all things. I think the first thing we have to gain, I would agree with you, that's the first, the first image that comes to mind. There's nothing to think about. I mean, the further we go in the text, the worse it gets. 
right? We have a heavens and an earth, but, but then all of a sudden it's dark and it's void of all things. The first thing we have to ask ourselves is we do when we're, whenever we're reading somebody else's writing is the question, who's writing this? That's a primary and fundamental question that has to be answered. I'll give you an example. I live out in the, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, okay, in Front Royal. And as I drive home right now, the trees are changing color. And if I say to you, imagine this with me, or if I write you a letter, and I describe the hills turning gold, turning yellow, a bright golden yellow, what am I talking about? What time of year am I talking about? The fall. But in fact, friends, I am from California. And in California in the summertime, if you've ever been there, it's dry. And the hills of California become an absolutely beautiful gold color. If you don't know who I am, where I have come from, and the intention of why I'm telling you what I'm telling you, you could completely misinterpret what I'm telling you. And so it's essential here at the beginning to gain a sense of who is writing. And who is the author of, of Genesis by tradition? Moses. Moses is the author of Genesis. You may read in some of your Bibles in the footnotes that Moses indeed was not the author, but again, they would be standing against the entire history of the church, all the saints and all the church fathers and the Jews and our blessed Savior Jesus Christ, who in the Gospel identifies Moses as the author of the law. And the law for the Jews was not simply the Ten Commandments, but the entire Pentateuch. Okay? And so we will take that in humility as, a, as, a, as our approach during this Bible study of the book of Genesis to try to gain a sense of the perspective of the early Christians. It is Jesus Christ who is our goal. He is the one who saves our souls, who gives us eternal life. It is our duty now to see through His eyes, to see the world through the eyes of the Creator. And so, as a faithful Jew, as the early Christians did, they accepted Moses as the author of this text. And we'll see why. There's good reason. I want to give you a principle as we get started. Whenever you're reading the Bible, you want to ask yourselves five questions. I call them my five W's. What are they? Who, what, why, where, and when. And if you answer those five questions, you're going to be well on your way to interpreting the text that's before you. That's your challenge. Who, what, why, where, and when. Okay? So who? Moses. And as we've talked about, those who have done salvation history with me before, whenever you're reading the writing of a prophet, and Moses was surely a prophet, what context do you need? What do you want to do to try to get a better sense of what that prophet's writing about and why they're writing? When you read the prophet Jeremiah, when you read his lamentations, what do you need to know about that first? Good, the Babylonian exile. The, Jeremiah had just undergone the destruction of Jerusalem, and he was making his way back 
to Jerusalem, being released by the Babylonians. He was given freedom, and he walked back to Jerusalem days after it had been burned to the ground. And he walked over the hills, and he saw what had been a beautiful city, the dwelling place of God on earth, and it was in ruins. It was smoldering. The people were dead on the ground. If you don't know that, then the book of Lamentations isn't going to make a whole lot of sense to you. Moses, the author of the Pentateuch, the author of the story of creation, also had a story. What do we know about Moses? What do we know about Moses? How about this? Let's go with our our five W's. Who? What? What is he writing about? The creation story. Why is he writing? Why is he writing? Yeah, God has asked him to do this, but, but also as a way to give to the people of Israel that are with him in the desert the story of where they came from. He's writing for the Jews. Yes, this story is to be read by you and me, but it is not first and foremost written for us. It was written for the Jews who were walking in the desert. Primarily. Okay? This, this matters greatly. Where? Where is he writing this text? Somewhere, right? Somewhere in the Sinai Desert. Sometime while they're in exile, while they've left, while they've left Egypt, and they're on their way to the Holy Land. At some point during the life of Moses, he writes this. What would be the first thing, if I walked out of this room right now and you really want to read the book of Genesis now, what would you go do first? Go and read the story of the life of Moses. And only then will you get a better sense of what he's writing. And the question when? The question when? I want to point you to a very interesting text in the book of Exodus. So let's turn there very quickly. Exodus chapter 24. Moses goes to Mount Sinai. He takes the 70 elders with him. They have a feast in the presence of God. And then God calls Moses up further on Mount Sinai in verse 12. Chapter 24, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tables of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his servant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Tarry here for us until we come to you again. Behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a cause, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. What did Moses see when he entered into the presence of God on Mount Sinai? What did he see there? If we scan down as the story continues in chapter 25, verse 8, God tells Moses, let them, let the people make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst 
according to all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. When he's up on Mount Sinai, he is shown a pattern by which he's to come down off of that mountain and build the temple of God, the tent of meeting. St. Paul gives us a further insight into this text in the book of Hebrews. So turn with me to the New Testament and find for yourself the epistle to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 5. He's speaking of the temple and the Jewish priests that serve there. And he says this in verse 5. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. They serve a copy of the heavenly sanctuary. In other words, the pattern which Moses saw when he was up on Mount Sinai was the dwelling place of God. And it makes sense, for he walked into that dwelling place. God appeared to him on Mount Sinai, and heaven and earth touched. And Moses beheld the heavenly sanctuary. And God told him, now now that you have seen it, you go down and you make a home for me among the people, so that my heavenly sanctuary can dwell once again on earth. Turn back to Exodus. And look at chapter 25, verse 40. I think it gives just a little more insight. It says, verse 40, And see, it's repeating the same text, but it gives us a little bit more. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. Which is being shown to you on the mountain. There on the top of Mount Sinai, God shows him the heavenly sanctuary. And what did it look like? St. Gregory the Dialogist says, What do they not see? Who sees him who sees all. What would you not see if you looked into the eyes of him who sees all things? And here, on the top of Mount Sinai, Moses receives the revelation of the dwelling place of God, the sanctuary, paradise. And that tent, which he comes down to build then, is a traveling tent. It's a prefigurement itself of the temple which will be built in Jerusalem. And when that permanent sanctuary is built, we behold the full revelation of which Moses had seen on Mount Sinai. So I have a homework assignment for you. Go back and read for yourselves 1 Kings chapter 5 through 8, the story of the building of the temple. And I will give you a hint that when you read the story of the building of the temple, you will find something very interesting. That throughout the Holy of Holies, covering every square inch of the sanctuary, are fruit trees and flowers, fruit pieces of golden fruit hanging off of the posts of the sanctuary. Moses, when he came down from Mount Sinai, 
Solomon, when he built the temple in Jerusalem, was instructed to build on earth a golden garden, a paradise of delight. And in fact, the priest, when he entered into the sanctuary, was told to do the very things which Adam and Eve had been told to do in the garden, namely, to till and keep, to avod and shamar. Moses beheld paradise. St. Ephraim says the symbol of paradise was depicted by Moses who made the sanctuary. So we have a three-part connection now. The heavenly sanctuary, the the earthly tabernacle that was built by human hands, and the Garden of Eden. All of which are in some way the same reality. The reality of God's house revealed to man. The place where man and God are are to come and meet. Hamilton, Victor Hamilton, who wrote Handbook of the Pentateuch, says, In anticipation of the tabernacle, the tip of Sinai has become a holy of holies. God's holy presence is there. It is forbidden to everyone except Moses and Aaron, who will eventually be the high priests. Moses, standing on Mount Sinai, I believe, stood and experienced the Garden of Eden and the creation of man. And far from a distant pattern, apart from Mount Sinai, what better way to teach somebody than to have them stand in the midst of your revelation? To see what is taking place. Yes, sir. Do you think Moses experienced the... uh future temple in Jerusalem and that revelation by God on Sinai? I would say, the question is, did Moses experience or see the future temple in Jerusalem? I would say he saw much more than that. He saw what the temple in Jerusalem was supposed to be. He saw the heavenly sanctuary of God. And like I said in the beginning, God's plan does not change. He saw the banquet in heaven in Revelation. There you go. I asked you to imagine what this looks like, and I want to read you St. Ephraim the Syrian. I'm going to be quoting constantly from St. Ephraim the Syrian. He's a doctor of the church for the very reason that he's a scripture scholar. Okay, And I want you to listen to him as he begins his hymns on paradise, as he begins to read the texts of Genesis that we're about to read. And he asks himself the question, what am I seeing? The same question we asked ourselves. He says, I took my stand halfway between awe and love. A yearning for paradise invited me to explore it, but awe at its majesty restrained me from my search. With wisdom, however, I reconciled the two. I revered what lay hidden and meditated on what was revealed. The aim of my search was to gain profit. The aim of my silence was to find comfort. Joyfully did I embark on the tale of paradise, a tale that is short to read but rich to explore. My tongue read the story's outward narrative, while my intellect took wing and soared upward in awe as it perceived the splendor of paradise. Not indeed as it really is, but insofar as humanity is granted to comprehend it. There's a guy that knows how to read scripture. So let's turn back to Genesis. Gee whiz, this is why I only got through verse 1 last time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What are the heavens? What what is the earth? When When I say that he created the heavens and the earth, 
What does the earth look like? We haven't gotten to verse 2 yet. A form, okay. Well, that doesn't look like anything, does it? When we think about the earth today, what do we think of? What picture do you have in your mind? A plant, exactly. A picture from the moon, from a satellite, yes? My dear friends, this book was not written only so that you and I, 2,000 years after Christ, could understand it. This was written for a people who walked on this earth, who didn't have satellites to help them understand it. And in fact, the word in Hebrew, Eretz, can be translated as earth, yes, but it can also be translated as land. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the land. What's the land look like? What's the, I haven't gotten to that verse yet. It's formless. Yeah, it's what you stand on. What do you think the Israelites understood about the land? What did it look like? They're standing in the middle of a desert. And what were the heavens? Were they the planetary uh, things going around in circles? Do you think? The heavens were what were overhead. And the land was what was underneath your feet. And it was formless and void. What does it mean to be without form? To be formless. It does, what do you mean it doesn't have any shape? We're all talking about the earth now, friends. No mountains. Good. No mountains. It doesn't have form to it. It doesn't have shape to it. No mountains. Are, it's flat. And in fact, the word tohu can also be translated as wilderness. As wilderness. It is without form. There are no mountains. It is flat for as far as you can see. <coughs> And it is void. The word in Hebrew can also be translated as unseen. It is unseen. Why would you not be able to see it? There's no light. Yeah. Umberto Casuto is a fantastic Jewish scholar, says, but in the context, really, uh, it should be understood as with, without having life to it. Without having life to it. But also, it is unseen. First of all, it's covered by water as we're going to find out shortly. And there's darkness upon the face of those waters. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters, or hovered over the abyss. The Spirit of God. In Hebrew, I'm sorry, this, this board's just terrible for this, but R-U-A-H, Ruach, Okay, can be translated as spirit, also as breath, also as wind. How did, how did Moses know that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters? Because he had a vision? I would think he felt the Spirit of God because there was a great wind sweeping over the waters. And in fact, Moses experienced a similar occurrence. At one point in his life, and when was that? When a great mighty wind of God came tearing down upon him. The crossing of the Red Sea. Turn very quickly with me to Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind 
all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. How strong do you think that wind was? <laughs> Very powerful. Skip down verse 15, chapter 15, verse 8. And this is Moses' hymn after he comes out of the, of the Red Sea. He sings a hymn to God. Wouldn't you sing a hymn to God after you cross the Red Sea unharmed? At a blast of thy nostrils, the waters were piled up. By the breath, the Ruach, the Spirit of God, which came down, blasted through the camp, and separated the waters of the Red Sea. And now Moses stands upon Mount Sinai and beholds the creation of the world. And notice, if you caught it, in Exodus chapter 24, how many days did it take Moses to get up to the presence of God? Seven days. On the seventh day, he beheld the face of God. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. What did it look like for God to speak and for light to come into darkness? I want you to think about that when you go home tonight. Turn off CNN. You know what they're going to talk about. I don't even have a television. I know what they're going to talk about. Turn it off. And go back and read this text and imagine for the first time what it was like for light to come shining into darkness at the creation of the world. What did it look like? What did the Spirit of God hovering over the waters feel like? Do you think it was powerful? I think it was. We begin now to read through the days of creation. And it reads as a litany. And God said, and it came to be, and God saw that it was good the first day. And God said, it came to be, God saw that it was good the second day, and so forth. The whole of the first chapter of Genesis is written for our instruction in a way that we would be very familiar to it in church, as a litany in the church. Hearing, hearing God create the world day after day and seeing that it was good. Let's read verse 6 and on. I want, you, I want to ask you just one question about each day. We've got to get through chapter 1 in five minutes, so we're going to do it. And God said, Let there be the firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and separated the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were, uh, which were I'm sorry, under the firmament which were, from the waters that are above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. So he separates the waters. Okay, And so now we have a sea. What is missing from day two? And it was good. Notice, on day two, it does not say that it was good. Huh. You ever noticed that before? I didn't think so. We've got to start being attentive so that you catch things like that and say, why not? Melanie, why not? I don't know. Well, I'm about to tell you. <laughs> What does it mean for a thing to be good? To be whole, to be complete, to be finished, yes? 
But keep reading. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And so it was. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together called seas. And God saw that it was good. You notice, he gathers the waters above and the waters below. And then he takes those waters below and finishes gathering them into the seas. And then the gathering of the waters is finished. And it was good. And on the third day then, we get a repetition two times. Two times God says that it was good. So we see that in verse 10. And then it keeps going for day three. And God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, Trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. So you get that repetition twice on day three, lacking on day two. On day four, which begins in, in verse 14, we get the creation of the sun and moon. But we have a problem. What was created on day three? On day three. And... Good. And what do plants need to grow? The sun. How is it possible that plants were alive before there was a sun? In fact, you might ask yourselves, how is it possible for there to be light before there was a sun? Our dear modern scholars, unfortunately, that do not believe in God, will point out this, and they'll say, you see, this is a myth. We know that there cannot be sun without light. And therefore, the story of the creation of the world is nonsense. And in fact, they'll go further and they'll say this is a hodgepodge of different myths that the Jews collected and kind of threw together as though they weren't smart enough to know that the, that the plants required sun to grow. Whenever you have a problem with this, friends, turn to the church fathers because they already, they already dealt with these issues. St. Ambrose says, Let everyone be informed that the sun is not the author of vegetation. How can the sun give the faculty of life to the growing plants when these, when these have already been brought forth by the life-giving creative power of God before the sun entered into such a life as this? The sun is younger than the green plants. Okay? And St. John Chrysostom says that he created the sun on the fourth day, lest you think that it is the cause of the day. In order to show us that the sun is not to be worshipped, the sun is not the creator of life, but for the very fact to teach us the truth about the creation of the world. Verse 20, And God said, Let the waters be brought, bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the firmament of heaven. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning a fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the cattle according to their kinds, everything that creeps upon the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, 
Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and likeness. In the image of, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? Intellect and will. The two spiritual faculties of man. It's a fine answer, yes? I would say the power of language. The power of language, the ability to communicate. Maybe, okay. I say truth and love. Truth and love. Okay. To have a soul? To be in the image and likeness of God? To have a spiritual soul? Okay. To bring forth more, to be have the ability to bring. Ah, but he had already said to be free, fruitful, and multiply to the animals, hadn't he? Oh, yes, in day five he did. Okay, it's different. It's different. <laughs> All right. They make a division between image and likeness. I say they consistently, fairly consistently in the church fathers. Yes, ma'am. Ability to self-reflect. Okay. I, first of all, before I give this answer, I think there's something to ev- what everybody is saying. We're seeing something special, something different about man that is not true about anything else in creation. Something special which God has placed here. Okay. And it's good for us to think, in what way do we reflect God, which is different than any other of the creatures that God has made? Okay. But the church fathers make a division between image and likeness, referring to nature and grace. By nature, we have a rational soul. We have reason, self-reflection. And in this way, yes, we are in the, image of, in, the, in the image of God. But also, man is made in the likeness of God. And that is, he is given the gift of grace. The gift of divine life. By which we become not only man, but partakers in the divine life partakers in the divine nature. We are called to divinization. Here in Genesis, we're introduced, I believe, to to something of a Hebrew idiom in this text. And it's further fleshed out the meaning of this image and likeness according to the Hebrew people in Genesis chapter 5. So we're just going to skip forward for just a second. And I know I'm out of time. Chapter 5. Let's look at it real quick and we'll conclude. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Verse 2. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and named him Seth. What does it mean to be in the image and likeness of another? To be a son. To be a child. And so here in Genesis chapter 1, we learn that God our Creator is not some distant Creator, but He is a Father to His children. And man is called, according to the fathers, to live out that life of sonship, not only by nature, but by grace, 
to grow, to choose to do what he is called to do. And in conclusion, I want to point out to you just one thing, and that is that we're revealed, we're told something about God, or something about God is revealed to us in this first chapter. It's something very simple, that he is the one that bestows life. He is the creator of all things. And now, at the end of the first week, we're introduced to a part of his creation that is to be in his image and likeness. In other words, to do what God has done. And I'll point out to you, the first few commandments given to mankind right here in the book of Genesis are to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over creation, and to till and keep the garden. When one is fruitful and multiplies, children are multiplied upon the earth. What God has begun in creation, man is called to continue as the image and likeness of God. When the king has dominion in righteousness, his kingdom is set in right order, and it does what it was supposed to do. It becomes fruitful. When a man, when a gardener tills and keeps his garden, his garden produces flowers and fruits. Man is put on this earth to do what his creator has already begun to do. And God has left it in a sense in seed form, both in the heart of man and in all of creation for one purpose, so that he can give us the chance to participate by choice to do what he has done from all eternity, to become by choice a child of God. And he gives us those first three commandments in order to accomplish that. St. Basil the Great says that when God breathed into man, he placed in man some share of his own grace in order that he might recognize likeness through likeness. Nevertheless, being in the image of the Creator, he is honored above the heavens, above the sun, above the choirs of stars. There's an old adage a philosophical principle that what is last in execution is first in intention. Ladies, if you want to make a cake, what do you got to do? You got to get the ingredients first. Then you got to get out the bowl and you got to do all these things. What is last in execution is first in intention. And the church fathers tell us that the whole of the creation story, the whole of the created wor- world was for one purpose. It was for you and for me. It was for mankind that we could live in a paradise of delight with our Heavenly Father. Everything that we read in chapter 1 of Genesis was for Adam and Eve. For them to take in their hands the gift of God and offer it in oblation back to the Father. Okay? Your homework this week. I'm sorry I went over. But your homework this week, I never let our other speakers go over. I'm in the back saying, cut it, cut it. All right, your homework this week is this. I want you to read chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis. But I want you to read them three times. Read it on, on what, are we, what is today? Tuesday, yes? 
So read one tomorrow, skip a day like that, and so forth. Okay? Read one on Sunday. Turn off the television. Turn off the football game. Okay? Read it three times. Why? Because God, our Father, has called us back home. And unfortunately, most of us do not recognize our home. It's time for us to start to recognize our home so that as we walk back into it, we will be comfortable, we will feel at home, and we will see our Heavenly Father for who He is. Okay? Fair enough? It's not that hard. That's like 10 minutes worth of reading. Maybe 20. Father, could you please, uh, we'll conclude in prayer. Please, please step. I promise that next week we'll have baklava. <laughs> and we'll just do a quick five minutes of Q&A for those that want to stay around. Father, if you could please conclude us in prayer. Amen. Amen. Right. Uh, what happens with carbon testing and things that we know certain words and certain things happen? Yeah. That man is actually old and stuff. It would happen if you end up. Yeah. Uh, here, here, I don't know how I reconcile it. Here's all I'm going to say about that. I'm going to leave it simply this Jesus and the apostles knew nothing of carbon dating. And, uh, and so our goal here in this Bible study is to get into this text to try to understand it as they would have. Okay? So. I'll leave that up to the scientists. I have my own positions that I can tell you in secret, but yes. Um, here's a prior question. The definitive, as I understand it, the definitive Christian version of the Old Testament is Greek, not Hebrew. Why are we studying the Hebrew rather than the Greek? Uh, no problem. Where there is a, a, um, a difference between the Hebrew text and the Greek text in its... Um, if there's a textual problem, yes, you go back to these things and, and consider them. But where there's no problem, then, I mean, in, in, for example, in the, in, um, in, uh, the word for, for spirit, okay, ruach, okay, which in, in, this is worthless, which in Greek is pneuma, okay, it has the same variation in the text, or a variation of, of interpretation, okay, so Pneuma can also mean, can be used for these three ways. So there's no problem here. Then if we, if we know the Hebrew word behind the Greek, oftentimes it will benefit us to go back to that even to get a fuller understanding. So there's no problem to go to the Greek or the Hebrew here. We, I could have pointed out pneuma to you in the, in the, in the Greek and we could have gone that, that way. Okay? Yes? What were your three first commandments to man? Because I kept hearing two. What were the first three commandments to man? Fruitful and multiply? To, well, to, to have dominion, right? And then to till and keep, which we haven't gotten there yet, is in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse uh, 15 and 16. Okay? To till and keep the garden. Yes? In, so far in creation, there's no mention, I don't think, of angels. Mm-hmm. Have they already been created? St. Ephraim says that at, during these, these days of creation, all things came in, all created beings came into existence, and not all things are mentioned in the text. Some have said that on, on day four, um, that with the creation of the lights of the sky, this would, the angels were being created at that time. Well, okay, it's, it's not made explicit in the text. Ezekiel's story about Satan, okay, the uh-huh. king of Tyre, was that, had that already taken place, or we don't know? We don't know in the text how it, how it lays out there, okay? 
Uh, I do believe, as I was reading yesterday in Ephraim's commentary, that he says that the angels fell on the sixth day. They fell on the day that man was created. Yes. Um, we often hear Christ referred to as the light of the world. Is there a correlation with that with the uh, light entering the world? God yeah. created light. He did not sure. create. Christ wasn't created. Sure. Was sure. Created. However, all things in creation are a manifestation of who God is. Okay, and so it's very fitting that as we learn about creation, we see things which are true about God Himself. Okay, such as the sun rising in the east every morning is a is a is an image, an icon of the rising of Christ, the true light of the world. Okay, and as the fathers say, God made the sun to rise every morning to show us the truth about His sun rising. So these things in creation are there and are a natural parallel, right? God speaks His word. And light comes into the world. Okay? And I'd recommend go back and read John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 again, because you see that same thing. The light, right? Christ is the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it or comprehend it. Okay, take it in. Okay? Very helpful also in, in meditating upon this text of what that looks like when that light shines into creation. Yes? God created, God, God placed Adam in the garden to work it and to watch over it. Now, what does he mean by that? Why did he, why did he do that? He placed, well, first of all, I would say, where is he, where is he placing them? He's, he's placing them in, in, a, in a pattern or an image of the heavenly sanctuary, the dwelling place of God. And it's there that God makes all things come to life, okay, in the presence of God. So he's, he's placed there to be an image in the image and likeness of God. Okay? God plants the garden in the beginning, so man is placed in the midst of that garden okay, to do with it what God has already begun. Okay? And to keep it, to guard it, to make it a, a, a secure place. As Saint, we'll get into this next week, but as St. Ephraim says, that the, the Garden of Eden was, um, was like concentric circles. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life. Guarding the way to the tree of life like a gate was the tree of knowledge. And then on the, there was an outer ring to the garden for, which separated the animals and man. Man was allowed to dwell in, this, in the Garden of Eden, okay? but the animals were not allowed to enter in. I'm saying St. Saint Ephraim, Saint Ephraim says this. There's a reason why he says this, and we'll get into it next week. And it has everything to do with this parallel or this triangle between the heavenly sanctuary the temple in Jerusalem, or the tent of meeting, and the garden of paradise. If you can see one, you can see the other. So you can learn about the temple by reading the garden of paradise. You can learn about the garden by reading about the temple. You can learn about both by, if you're ever taken into the heavenly sanctuary as, as St. Paul was. Okay? St. Paul says, I don't know whether I was in the body or out of the body. Okay? But I know I was in, in paradise itself. In the third heavens. In paradise itself. So, why was I talking about that? I don't know. Don't worry about this. We'll get into it next week. But the, the, the point is that there's a holy of holies, right? In the center. There's the, play, the outer court where man can dwell. There's a further outer realm outside where, where the nations are or the, the, the Gentiles are. Okay? And he goes further and says that the, 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 the animals can't come in. Which means that for Adam and Eve to talk... To the serpent, where do they have to go? 
at least to the edge of paradise. Is that where the okay. was? We'll talk about that next week. <laughs> well, you already asked a question, right? Anything last yes? The last question, I think, here. It said God created the heavens, mm -hmm. plural. Okay. Yeah. In Hebrew, there's, I won't write it out, it's okay. There's something called the plural of magnificence. The plural of magnificence, meaning something which is, which it can't be expressed by, by the singular. Okay? The heavens. We get the same thing with the name for God, Elohim. Okay? The plural. So you'll, you'll recognize this from cherub and cherubim. Okay? Or seraph and seraphim. Okay? The I-N there indicates the plural. Does this mean there are many gods? No, it's in the Hebrew, the plural of magnificence. Okay, and how do you know that in the Hebrew? Because the, the verb which follows the subject of the sentence is in the singular. And that indicates to you that it's a plural of magnificence and not talking about a plural subject. Okay, or many subjects, okay? Not that I know Hebrew. I don't. A glimmer of the Trinity. Well, I, let's finish with this, okay? Let's finish with this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then Elohim, then God said, Let us make man in our image. And many have said, including the church fathers, is this some sort of an indication, an early indication of the life of the Trinity? Okay? Well, is it the plural of magnificence? And the answer is no. Because the word there for make in the Hebrew is also in the plural. Okay? But when God goes to create, in verse 27, so God created, so Elohim in the plural created, the word there created is in the singular. Again, it goes back to the plural of magnificence. And so some of the fathers have said that this possibly is a reference to the Trinity it could be, but, you know, the Jews also had their interpretation, as Casudo does, of, uh, uh, talks about the, uh, the plural of magnificence in act, okay? And so it can take a, a plural verb. You know, hey, we don't know. But what we do know is that we have a God who is not only creator, but is father of his children. And now, if we want to know who we are, we go to look at him and who he is and what he has just done. And by looking at that, we'll find out what God has planned for each and every one of us. Okay? We'll finish with that. God bless you. We'll see you next week. And make sure you... Uh, thank you.